The first step is don't try to eliminate conflict. You cannot. All you're doing it, pushing it under the surface and it continues to percolate and it's actually going to destroy you. Greetings everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet coming to you from the Road 55 studio in Edmonton, Alberta, where every episode we feature a different thought leader or best-selling author, all in the name of helping you become the best leader you can be. I wanna thank our show sponsor, CompuVision, a VC3 company. Now you know that feeling when your technology stops working? Good IT companies fix that problem for you quickly. But wouldn't it be better if your technology just didn't break down in the first place? Well, that's what CompuVision does. They're an exceptional IT provider that makes sure the breakdown doesn't happen in the first place. CompuVision keeps your organization safe and secure by managing day-to-day -day technology needs, protecting against cyber criminals, and accelerating technology strategy in your business for today and tomorrow. Reach out to their awesome team at CompuVision.biz. Leaders are constantly trying to avoid and solve problems, but what you may not know is that the types of problems you're experiencing could be a sign that your business is either in danger or it's healthy. In today's episode, we'll teach you how to tell the difference between bad problems and good ones, and also how to increase the odds of building a business that can deliver consistent results as it grows. Now, my very special guest today is Dr. Ichak Adijis. Now, Dr. Adijis is widely acknowledged as one of the world's leading management experts. Over the course of 40 years, he has developed a unique methodology that enables corporations, governments, and organizations to manage accelerated change without destructive conflict. In recognition of his contributions to management theory and practice, Dr. Adijis has received 19 honorary doctorates. He has advised prime ministers and government officials throughout the world, as well as corporate startups and members of the Fortune, 500, or Fortune 100. He lectures in four languages and is the author of 24 books that have been translated into 31 languages. He's the president of the Adigis Institute, a global organization focused on helping create healthy and high-performing organizations. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Adigis to Unleashed. Dr. Adigis, welcome. Thank you, Jeff, and I'm really flattered that you invited me to speak, and I'm very, very happy to answer questions. Well, I, I have become fascinated by your work, and I wish I would have uh, you know, discovered it uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and your good friend David Bridges put me on to, to your exceptional research and methodologies. I guess it's about 18, uh, 18 months ago, just, in, just as the pandemic was sort of firmly entrenching itself in the world. Uh, and so since then, be just become really interested in your research and your methodologies and, and your approach to helping businesses become more successful. So this is, uh, is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, and you're, jo you're joining us from California, is that correct? Santa Barbara, California. Wonderful, wonderful. So I can, I can appreciate the weather's a little different than it is up here where I am in Western Canada. So, uh, Beautiful. So Dr. Adijas, you know, I, one, of the thought, one of the things I, I, I was just curious about as I became more familiar with, uh, with your work was what caused you to want to devote so much of your life to understanding how organizations function? Well, I was a professor at UCLA, tenured professor, visiting professor at Stanford and Columbia, and you name it. And then one company invited me to do consulting. So I spent good time, analyzed the problem in depth, wrote a great report, submitted it, and nothing happened. And I really got depressed. So the next one, I, there was another consulting job I wrote a report how to become a racing horse and they delivered the camel. So I was really getting depressed. And I talked to somebody from McKinsey and I said, what the hell is going on here? You know, I'm a fake professor. I'm teaching something and it does not get implemented. And he said, he started actually laughing at me and he said, welcome to the club. The consulting industry is a major problem they just quote the books and write a beautiful report and a lot of data and a beautiful charts and tables, but the implementation is a problem. Then I discovered that the problem is not only in consulting. How many of us decided to go on a diet? So we decided. 
we don't go on a diet or we decided to exercise. There is something called problem of implementation. And then 40, 50 years ago, actually, I looked at the library and I could not find one book on implementation. And then I looked at the executive, at all the programs, Columbia, Stanford, UCLA. We don't have one course in the MBA program how to implement decisions. We only teach them how to decide. I quit the university, gave up my tenure with a wife and two little children, and decided I'm going to find out how to implement change. And here is the first take on value, Jeff. It's better to have a mediocre strategy that you implement than you have an incredible strategy you don't implement. And that's what happens to many companies. They make decisions and then, then they go for a drink. How do you implement? And the methodology I developed is, how do you manage change rapidly without destructive conflict and you really can see the results? That's why I like your unleashed for results. Yeah, well, and that's that's been our experience. I mean, for the last, I guess, it's 20 plus years now, hard to believe, about almost 25 years, we, working with mid-market companies, largely in Canada, it's it's the execution piece, the implementation implementation piece that's been the challenge. And there's uh, there's an abundance of ideas, but what an organization and what a leadership team can do with them often uh, does separate the, the great companies from everybody else. Now, one of the things that I, I like about your work is how you uh, you sort of compare it to a living organism. And, and one of the things that you talk about extensively is that all companies age, but, but companies are either young or they're old. How do you tell if your company is youthful or if you're becoming uh, you know, a senior citizen? There are two factors that interact, flexibility and controllability. Young companies, like young people, they're very flexible, but not that controllable. You know, that they kind of, uh, they're flexible. And when you get in an aging stage, especially in old age, you are very, you want everything under control. That's why old people are a little bit pain in the neck, but they're not very flexible. They're meant to control everything. So you have to look at the ratio between controllability and flexibility. A company is in prime, when it is controlled flexibility. We are flexible, but we are in control of our flexibility. So our methodology is how to take a company and bring it to that stage called prime and teach it how to stay in prime. And as I was telling you before we started, we have proven this methodology. We have taken uh, the company today, it's called Wonderful, they own Fiji water, pistachios, etc., from 12 million to 4 billion, Domino Pizza from 150 million, also to 4 billion. So this is a methodology that once you learn how to be flexible, but not out of control, and how not to be too much in control, that's the trick. So you talk about control being one of the causes of aging. I mean, all companies start out with lots of excitement and youthful exuberance and passion and energy for the future. What are some of the other things, like some of the main contributors to aging, Dr. Adigis? Sure. There are four factors. So, okay. Four, four on one side and one on the other side. So let me tell you what the sides are. On the decision, go. in order to manage change, you have to decide and implement. And there are different factors that play a role here. They're not one and the same. As a matter of fact, the factors that will make you make good decisions are the factors that are going to undermine implementation. And the factors that make good implementation are going to undermine making good decisions. That's why it's so difficult to make good decisions and implement them. And what are they? Uh, if you want to look at it from a political science point of view, for decision making, you need a diversity of styles that complement each other and make good decisions. Because nobody is a perfect person. Nobody is perfect. If you have ever a doubt, talk to your spouse. Your spouse will tell you, I'm not that perfect. Nobody is perfect. So what do we need to increase the quality of our decisions is a complementary team. Somebody who thinks differently and from whom we learn and learn from each other, make better decisions. That is called the political science democracy. But democracy is terrible for implementation. Why? 
we don't agree, you don't agree, I don't agree, and look at the American Congress. I mean, they can drag their feet for years. What is good for implementation is dictatorship. But dictatorship is terrible for decision-making. So how do you get the two together? That is a big challenge. And what causes aging is the following thing, on the decision-making. You lose your entrepreneurial spirit. And the entrepreneurial spirit is what causes flexibility. And why would you lose entrepreneurial spirit? Number one is whoever is in control of the company, like a major stockholder, just achieved a certain level of success. And he says, enough, I want to enjoy life. You know, enough is enough. And I want to do something else. And now he kind of wants to conserve what he built rather than to build more. So that's the first cause. The second cause is that the company achieved a certain level of success and just kind of says, we made it, you know, just let's keep what we have. That's called perceived relative market share. I use the word perceived because it's in your head. I can show now your audience how to have 100% market share in 30 seconds. Just decide that you want to sell only to people that buy from you. Bingo, you have 100% market share. So depending on your dream, that's how big your market share is. You know, if you want to be a global company, you're probably 0.0001%. If you want to be just Alberta as your market, you're probably 90% market share. So it is perceived relative market share, and relative means who is the next competitor next to you. So if you are outpacing the competition and you're way ahead of the competition, as they perceive the market, you will just say, I did it. It's like putting a racing horse to compete with mules. Eventually, it's going to start running like a mule because nobody is competing. The most important factor, the most important factor that people do not realize, and as a matter of fact, it's not in fashion to look at it, and people get upset with me when I say it's the most important factor, it's your organizational structure. If the organizational structure is wrong, and that's a long lecture, Jeff, mm -hmm. what does it mean right, what does it mean wrong? People step on each other's toes, they start getting into internal conflicts, and all the energy, instead of looking at the market, turns inwards and we start fighting each other, misunderstanding each other, and it depletes the energy that you can compete. That causes aging. It will be like for a person when the hips start hurting, you cannot walk very well, and you feel very old because your hips hurt. So it is a structure that causes. And I would say in my methodology, at this methodology, our most important thing that we work in a company, out of everything else we do, is to make the structure right. So how do you determine then what structure is appropriate for the stage that your business is at? Like how do you avoid falling victim to that internal conflict that just eats a business from the inside? Oh, okay, this is a question. Uh, do you have a week that I can talk about it? Well, and, well, and I think you know, and Dr. Didis, uh, I think it's a it's I'll a good point. But I, I, was, but I, I was joking. I was, yeah, but I think I just I think some high line mind. stuff, like if if even if there's only if there's a couple to... of things that you see happen a lot that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to be funny, Jeff. No problem. <laughs> I was just trying to tell you it's a big subject, so people should not assume that by just giving them a tip they got the whole thing. Look. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A healthy company on the decision side, and the implementation is another factor, is a company that is effective and efficient in the short and in the long run. These are the four factors. Effective, which means you get your job done, and which is measured by are the clients coming back, which is your reputation. Efficient means are you wasting your time going around in circles or are you going in a straight line? but it should be for the short and the long run. And an organization should be structured to deliver those four factors. For instance, I'll give you only the typical mistakes that companies do. 
And then I will tell you, for companies that you're dealing with, which are in the mid-market, beware. Whatever I'm going to tell you now does not apply to you. <laughs> I'm going to give you the principles that then I will tell you how to apply to you, okay? okay. Don't copy it immediately. Marketing should deal with the long run, long run effectiveness. It is to look at the future. Marketing is future. Sales is today. What did you do for me today? Typical mistake in companies, aging companies, is that they put marketing and sales together. Vice president of sales and marketing. The moment I look at chart and I see VP sales and marketing, I already know, aging. Why? Because sales will dominate. Short term will dominate the long term. This is Simon already, the Nobel Prize in economics said. Short term wins the long term. Obviously, you have a short term problem, long term has to wait. And then marketing becomes a sales support activity. I call them transvestites. It looks like a man, but really it's a woman. They're really not doing marketing. They're doing sales support. They're not looking at the future. They're trying to support the present. The same mistake is done by engineering and production. Engineering, developing the production line, developing new products is a long term. Production is a short term. They put together, engineering turns out to do maintenance. They're repairing the machines. They're not doing really long term. And the biggest problem that very difficult to overcome, very, very, very difficult to overcome, is they put accounting and finance together. Finance should be looking at the long run. Where do we get the money? Where do we invest? Are we getting our return on investment? Accounting always looks like they have hemorrhoids. You know, they're always like this, you know, very, very conservative, <laughs> you know, all every number said to be right. So if you put them together, either you will get Enron, creative accounting, and you end up in prison, or you will get a company liquid like a fish because accounting is dominating and risk averse, and finance is just some kind of a reporting bullshit. You need to split those two or you or those, or you will age. The structure will age you. You lost anybody that deals with the long run, with the change, with flexibility. In your companies that you deal with, the mid-range, you cannot have so many vice presidents. So what do you do? Typically what happens, the founder does the long term. The founder deals with the marketing, what market should be going. The founder decides how we should produce, what we should produce, what products we should have. The founder truly deals with the finance. Although the accounting guy is called CFO, but he's really no, he's really a controller. <clears throat> and that's a problem because all the entrepreneurial spirit is concentrated, monopolized by one person. And when that person dies, what happens to the company? Usually doesn't survive, yeah. So what you need to do is you have to institutionalize entrepreneurial spirit into the company. To move that from the founder to the company to institutionalize it. And that's a not an easy transition to make. And that's what the methodology is about. And that will take a week to explain. And I don't have the time to explain. Yeah. Dr. Adijas, the other thing that you hit on was... As comp when companies are, are born and, and they're in that sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're in that courtship phase that you would describe it as, there's lots of excitement, uh, but there's also nothing to lose. And so the perceived risk is quite, is quite low. And if they were risk averse, they wouldn't be starting a business in the first place. And then I wonder about the psychology of loss and how that plays into it. So as, as the business starts to have some success, we start to, to want to hold on to what we have and not lose it. So how does a company, as it grows and becomes sustainable, how does it reinsert or reinvigorate itself with that entrepreneurial spirit that it once had, that it maybe has lost touch with? Let me see if I understood you. When you start, you're very entrepreneurial. I'm repeating you to be sure I understood you. Then there is no, you know, you don't have much to lose. You can be very entrepreneurial. And then when you have something to lose, then uh, you don't get become that entrepreneurial. That's what you question, right? What do we do? That's right. Okay, listen. I use this uh, story. How do you catch a monkey, do you know? You find a hole in the tree that is the size of your arm, but a little bit bigger than the arm. You put a coconut there in the hole, 
the monkey comes, grabs the coconut, and now the coconut plus the hand is bigger than the hole. He will not let go of that coconut. <laughs> and you grab him. The whole trick is to let go of the coconut. And their companies have a difficulty. Anytime, look what happened to IBM. IBM did not go into the PC because they were holding on to the main mainframe coconut. They will not go anywhere else. AT&T did not go after the mobile phones. Do you know that? They, they had it. They said, no, 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 no. Because they did not want to cannibalize what they had. They didn't want to let go of the, of the coconut. So what you need to do here is a, it will not happen unless you restructure the company. You hear me? No, everybody thinks we have to change the strategy. No, my friend. Because I look at the company as if it is a big ship. If you want to know which direction the ship is going to take, look at the engines. If the right engine is stronger than the left engine, you can talk on this, on the, you can be on the, on, the, on the top of the boat and scream, left, no, right, right, right. It will not happen. The boat is going to go left because the right engine is stronger than the left leg. So I look at an organization, I look at the power structure, and I have to change the power structure to change the direction. Then they let go of the, of the, of the coconut. So in other words, typical mistake is that this is typical mistake of consulting companies. They say, structure follows strategy. First you do the strategy, then you know what strategy structure you want. Absolutely wrong. Because they're assuming typical consultants sitting in windowless rooms and studying the market and numbers. They're starting with the assumption that you're starting from zero. But it's not zero. There is a company there and people have built in interests. Now you're planting something into something that is already planted. That's why they get a rejection to change. What you do is strategy follows structure. First, build the right structure so that you can plant the right seeds and trees. Work on the infrastructure. You first have to fertilize the land before you can plant your new strategy. So when we come to a company, we say, Oh, you need to change. Yes, we need to change. We are losing market share. Uh, they're holding on to the to the to the what's the name to the coconut. I say, okay, keep holding the coconut. Then we look at the structure. We separate marketing from sales, separate engineering from production, separate finance from accounting. And what are we getting? A new power structure. And now I got myself in the company partners for change. And what's going to be? These people are going to scream, let go of the coconut, we are losing. And now we can start talking about the strategy. You have to fertilize, you have to work on the land before you put the building. So Dr. Adijas, if you change the structure, what do you need to do for the decision making then? Because you might have all the right roles, uh, the, the right functional roles separated and, and accounted for. How does an effective organization then make decisions so that you do let go of the coconut? Because I could see you know, oh, the loudest yeah. person in the room or the most dominant person on the team is still Beautiful trying to hold question. that coconut even though you've got the right structure. Okay, look, here is a sequence. First, you, you divide the tasks. Don't look at the people. Typical mistake that companies that you deal with, they structure the company around people. But people come and go, and then you're stuck with a structure which is <laughs> a mess, you know, a total mess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't structure around people. Forget the people. I tell them, people are all on vacation. We are starting from scratch. What is the optimal organizational structure? And then we'll populate it. Now we populate it with people whose style fits the task. So you want to put in marketing, not an ex-salesman. That's a mistake. The salesman is short-term oriented. You put somebody who is creative, who is aggressive, who wants to change the world, and he wants to eat a bull for breakfast. 
and now you put those people there. So you populate the long-term structure with people that have a long-term view, want to take risk, want to build. Now we have a problem. We are going to have enormous conflict. Why? Because the people that look for the long run despise the people that look at the short run and the people that look at the short run say these guys are going to burn the company down they are dreamers they are astronauts what the hell are we doing with them now there is another method another part of my methodology how to make them work together it's a five-day course jeff five-day course by the way there is a book i have 26 books not 21. one of the books is how to manage meetings effectively how do you take those people with different styles to start talking to each other? Now, I'll give you the tip. Well, I can give you a tip because otherwise it's a five-day course or you have to read the book. It follows the song by Simon and Garfunkel. Don't walk ahead of me because I might not follow. Don't walk be behind me because I might not lead. Walk beside me and be my friend. So we don't let them outpace each other. We are all methodology how to advance together and come to conclusions together, which is an enormous, in the Disney methodology, their discipline, the rules of how you run a meeting. And anybody that breaks the rules has to do push-ups or pay money for, 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 uh, for, uh, for poor people, you know, uh, make a donation. You have to follow the rules. People that hate to follow the rules, we say follow the rules or buy yourself a ticket to Latin America and don't come back. You have to follow the rules. There is no way we can work together unless we accept the rules of working together. You know, and so we teach them rules, discipline. There is a whole manual. There is a whole protocol. How do you run a meeting? For instance, we start on time. If somebody comes late, we have, he has to do push-ups. And I work with governments. I have members of the cabinet do push-ups. I mean it. You came late, push-up. Why? Here we are cooking a dish. We're in the middle of serving the dish. A guy comes and says, what are you discussing? I don't think I agree with that. You want to kill the guy, right? I mean, what the hell is going on here? We start together. We end together. We advance together. It's our rules. It is forbidden to interrupt somebody talking. If you interrupt me, you pay penalty. You have to listen till the end, then tell me what you think. So we have a rules of how do you manage a meeting to avoid the conflicts from becoming destructive. Come on time, live on time. <clears throat> Number one. Number two, no interruptions. When somebody is talking, respect it. Now, when do you know, how do you know when they stop talking? It's not when they stop talking. Because many times people talk, talk, talk. They stop talking, but their head continues working. They are thinking about what they said. If you pay attention to people talking and you don't interrupt them, like in psychotherapy, they will talk, 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 then their eyes turn upwards. Then they say, eh, and what I also wanted to say and by the way, that's not what they meant to say. You say they're checking what they're saying. How do you know when he finished? The only person that knows that he finished saying what he wants to say is the person speaking. So the rule is when you finish talking and you decide that you finished, turn to your right and call the next person on your right to speak by calling them by first name. Why first name? Because the last name becomes very formal. Mr. Adidas. Wow. No, 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 no. Ichak. Okay, so that way it becomes much more friendly. So the conflict is always controlled by the language you use. The moment you call the person by name, you cannot interrupt. Then the other, that person talks. So you pass the right, the, the, the right to speak to the right. Why, why to the right? Why not to the left? Just to show you how deep this is, a very detailed methodology. Going to the left is normal. That's how the clock goes. That's how you see the field. And the danger is that you will you are still thinking, but you're passing it. To pass to the right is counterintuitive. So you really have to be conscious that you finished in order to pass to the right. So that test you did, you really finish talking.
you call by first name. Uh, then we have other rules, but I think these are the main, most important rules. And I'll tell you what the bottom line is. If you don't read the books, if you don't watch, I have many videos, by the way, I have many, many videos on the methodology. Just look at the website. I tell you what you do. You create your own rules. How do you know that? Anything that violates mutual trust and respect is forbidden. And everything that increases mutual trust and respect is encouraged and rewarded. Period. Create your own rules. Create your own rules. In many companies, we say, what undermines your mutual respect? Give you an example. In a small advertising company, people say, I'm working on a copy. I'm totally concentrated. Somebody comes into my room, interrupts me. I lose my, my, my thought, and I have to start all over again. I'm really upset. Say, so, okay, so what do we do? So we put lights in the door, green, red, and green, uh, yellow. Red means if you come in, I will kill you. Yellow means I'm on the phone, come in and wait. And green means come in, I'm free to talk. So we create, you can create your own rules. I give you my rules, which are globally implemented in 70 countries of the world because the methodology is very, we spread it all over the world. But you can adapt it to your needs, whatever are the needs in your company. Dr. Deja, so I like also in your work how you describe a, a business like a living organism. And you talk about there's sort of six healthy stages of a business. And it, it goes from courtship to an infant to a go-go organization to adolescence from prime. And then a stable organization would sort of be the sixth one. And I know there's a lot, I know there's a lot to unpack here, but part of building a successful company that can endure is smoothing out the transition proactively. And are there, are there some things like across the board that companies should be paying attention to to try to smooth that, to smoothen those transition points as they grow? Sure. Okay, look. Um, in order to be effective and efficient in the short and the long run, there are four quote-unquote vitamins managerial roles that need to be performed. That's what the book is that you're giving away, talks about these roles, okay? <clears throat> so in order to be effective in the short run, you need to letter P, to produce results, that's a role. Then you need to administer, which is a short-term effectiveness. And you need to E, which means entrepreneurial for long-term, and I for long-term efficiency. Those four vitamins, these four roles, those four functions, whatever word makes sense to you, need to be developed in the company. And that's what causes the life cycle. Nobody is born mature and perfect with a PhD in physics, you know? Like a human being, it takes time. You have to grow. So if you look at the little children, they're developing their roles, first they learn how to crawl, then they learn how to walk, then they learn how to run, then they learn how to give trouble to the parents and to get independent, and there are different stages. Same thing with the company. The roles develop in a predictable sequence. Predictable sequence, that's the beauty of the methodology. And now, if developing the role is happening at the, at the appropriate stage of the life cycle, it's normal problem. That's why the grandparents will tell you, leave the kid alone, he will grow out of it. Stop, you know, jumping on him and giving him a hard time. Because the grandparents have been through this picture before, you know, they've been through this movie. So developing that role that is appropriate for the life cycle where you are is normal. Example, startup company, totally startup, is developing the entrepreneurial role. What should we do? What we should not do? They're testing, it's like a little baby like a little baby dropping things on the floor, all the time dropping things on the floor, is testing, is learning. You're developing the e-role. The companies that are 40 to 30, 40 million dollars like you, that they need to develop the A-role. Structure, organization, systems, processes, control of budgets, you know, the reward system. Now, that is normal. Abnormal is when you did not develop that role in the previous stage of the life cycle, and now it is haunting you at the next stage of the life cycle. 
in personal life, it's called the Peter Pan syndrome. The guy is 40 years old, he's still behaving like a teenager. See what happened? He did not develop to the next stage of the life cycle. Yeah. Abnormal is when in the next, next stage of the life cycle, you're still living with that. Like peeing your pants as a baby, normal. But now you're peeing as a CEO and you're 45 years old. Now we really have a problem. So when you look at the problem, I ask myself the question, is it normal for where you're in the life cycle? And if not, what do we do about it? The other thing you talk a lot about, Dr. Adijas, is, is conflict uh, as there's change. And so when there's change, inevitably there is conflict. And that's one of the main reasons that people fear change is that conflict. How do you introduce an environment where perhaps conflict can become productive? Okay, very good. That's a course of five days. I told you, and my but the book is too short. You need you have to take, you have to look at my videos or to take a course. Look, the first step is don't try to eliminate conflict. You cannot. All you're doing it, pushing it under the surface, and it continues to percolate, and it's actually going to destroy you. It's applicable, by the way, I have a book about how to apply a disease to marriage. My book is called The Power of Opposites. Because we marry our opposite. Show me a marriage without conflict and we'll show you a dead marriage. They're always in conflict because we're different. So what will destroy a marriage is not what you talk about, it's what you don't talk about. Oh, let's not talk about it, we're going to have a conflict. But what happens? It is still there percolating under the surface. And one day, your spouse tells you, I want a divorce, you say, what ha happened? Well, what happened is, it finally erupted. So what the first purpose is, don't hide conflict. Face the conflict. Deal with the conflict. And now, how do we do it? It's called mutual respect and trust. What causes conflict to be destructive is lack of mutual trust and respect. If you want to see what's happening between Russia and Ukraine today, is lack of trust. Oh, you want to expand. Oh, you're a Nazi. Lack of respect. Lack of trust. Whenever there is lack of trust and respect in a marriage, in a company, in a country, is destructive conflict. So the way you make it constructive is to look at what is causing the deterioration in trust and respect. And how do we change the culture? How do we do it so we start respecting each other? So I would give you the rules for mutual respect. What is respect? Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, says, respect is when you recognize the right of the other party to be different. You don't have to be like me. If you look at it, international relations, you know what? You are dictatorial. This is your problem, my friend. You don't have to be like me. We destroyed countries by forcing them into democracy when they're not ready. Like Iraq. We destroyed that goddamn country. We destroyed countries by forcing something they're not ready for. So respect is, I recognize your right to be different, but not destructive. Destructive is when you don't recognize my right to be different, like fascism, Nazism, or, re, or fanatic religions. You have to be Catholic or I will, I don't know. You have to be Muslim, I will cut your head off. Well, it's not mutual. It has to be mutual, recognize each other right to be different. In a marriage, in a company, in a country. Next, how do you build trust? Trust exists when there is a faith, when there is a belief that there is common interest. If I believe that you have an interest and you are threatening my interest, I don't trust you that much, you see? Uh, you, you are trying to take advantage of me. So we have to build common interest. Do you know, by the way, that Russia wants to join NATO? We know Putin accept them. 
Really? We didn't no. accept them. We didn't accept them. They wanted to join European Union. We didn't accept them because we didn't have a common interest. So what you need in a company to make conflict that constructed, not to eliminate it, but to convert it to be constructive, is to build mutual respect. I accept your difference and you accept my difference and we listen to each other and we learn from each other. And common interest, where are we going? What are we going to benefit together from by, by collaborating and cooperating? And that you have to look at the reward system, you have to look at the recognition, you have to look at many, many things. And if you create that culture of mutual trust and respect, conflict becomes constructive. People that come to companies that practice a disease, interestingly enough, say, you guys have a lot of conflict. And people say, conflict? I don't see we have conflict. You don't, you know why? Because they're learning from each other. There is exciting time. I learn from you, you learn from me. You know, it, it, there is a lot of excitement in the company. And that's what we do in companies. That's why companies grew, as I told you, from 12 million to 4 billion. And the owner is still 100% owner, organic growth. Okay? And you can look at the testimonials in my site, on my website. Uh, or the company in, in, in Mexico that I helped, they went from 250 million to 15 billion. And they say, and the owner says, thanks to Dr. Adiz's methodology. This methodology works. It's a tested methodology. It's not some kind of a thing developed in a library or in a university, you know, in a windowless room. That is some of the best advice I've ever heard on, on managing conflict and mutual trust and respect. I'm, I'm gonna uh, make sure that we put that into practice. Thank you for that. There's something else that you talk about that really uh, it fascinates me. And it's this notion of, of pivoting and adapting. And the, the, I mean, the most recent example that we have, of course, is when COVID hit two years ago, that was probably the most overword used on the planet was pivot and adapting. Now, you make the assertion that when we talk about pivoting and adapting, those are reactive states. And what you suggest is instead, which is a lot more effective, is getting better at predicting where the world is going. I don't think I'm very good at that, and I don't think I'm alone, but what are some ways that you can, you can get better at predicting where you think the world is gonna go? When, when Trump got elected, I said he's going to be impeached. I said, how do you know? I said, I know. How do I know? You need to study the life cycle. By the way, it's not, the book that you're giving people is about the vitamins. If they want to know about the life cycle, they have to look at my book called Managing Corporate Life Cycles. Because if you know where you're in the life cycle, which role you're developing, and which role needs to be developed in the next stage of the life cycle, you can predict where its company is going. If we don't develop the next role in the life cycle, we are going to be in trouble. So I know, I know what the trouble is going to be. So what you should do is proactively prepare today for the roles that you will need tomorrow. Planning is not what we are going to do tomorrow. That's called dreaming. Planning is what the hell are we going to do today so when tomorrow arrives, we can deal with that. Now you talked about COVID. Now I'll give you something about COVID. Maybe it will help, help all of us. COVID is not new. We have had pandemics in the history. We had the cholera, Middle Ages, then we have the Spanish flu, then we have the SARS and the Ebola, and now the COVID, and now the Omicron. But look at something very interesting. The time span between one pandemic to the other is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. How long did it take from COVID-19 to Omnicore? Overnight. What's happening? What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. Everything in this world is a system. A company is a system. You are a system. A family is a system. By definition, every system is composed of subsystems. The subsystems do not advance at the same speed. In a company, marketing changes faster than sales. Sales 
changes faster than production. Production changes faster than accounting. To change accounting, you should live long enough. Because of that, gaps develop in the system, so-called disintegration. Change causes disintegration. And the disintegration is manifested in what we call problems. All problems stem from disintegration. Now, what you need to do is predict where are we going and what's going to fall apart. Take example, COVID. Which subsystem of society is advancing the fastest? The technological subsystem. There are more scientists living today than accumulatively in the history of mankind. Technology has outpaced our capability to deal with the economic system. The economic system is not caught up with the technological subsystem. Look at all of these cryptocurrencies, NFTs, EFTs, God knows what. What the hell is going on? The technological has advanced the economic system. The economic system has gone faster than the legal system. The legal system advanced faster than the political system. We have a political system which is outdated. Democracy as designed in Greece 2,000 years ago is outdated today. And the slowest advancing is the social subsystem. Those gaps cause us to have also physiological medical problems. Our body is not capable of adapting to the technological changes, to the dirty air, to the stress we live in, to the pressures we live in, to the food we eat, which is loaded with chemicals, sugar, and what's happening? The body cannot adapt to the speed by which we are advancing. So what we are getting? Physiological problems, psychological problems, cancer, pandemics, the fastest, fastest medical mental problem growing in the, in the modern society, depression, anxiety, panic. That's what's happening. We are falling apart. The world is falling apart because the subsystems are advancing not in a synchronized way. That's why companies fall apart. They're not advancing in a synchronized way. That's why people fall apart. They are not advancing. The families are falling apart. The secret of success is to change without falling apart. Those are some profound insights, Dr. Adijas. Thanks for sharing those. Um, capitalism, uh, you've suggested, was sort of created on this foundation of trust and mutual respect because of equal opportunity. And I have to ask you, with sort of the rising wealth disparity that we're seeing around the world. Have your views on that mutual trust and respect and equal opportunity that capitalism used to provide changed? Oh my God, thank you. One of my first books I wrote, wow, 1972, many, many, 50 years ago. It still exists in my library, but nobody reads. I wrote it with the daughter of Thomas Mann. Elizabeth Mann Borgese. The book is called Self-Management, New Dimensions to Democracy. The capitalist system, vulgar capitalist system, cannot work. And the danger is we are going to go to the other extreme, socialism. Like Churchill said, capitalism is unequal distribution of wealth, and socialism is an equal distribution of poverty. What we need is a system in the middle, and that's what my book is about. We need a system, and I'll tell you the bottom line. We need to make the workers sharing the profits of the company. We must make the workers not a class society different from the owners. We should all own the company, have common interest. When we start talking, we, the capitalists, own the company, you are just a worker. That's exactly what the problem is. 
Workers should not be workers. They're my partners. So what we do in companies that try to cre create part of the growth is share the bounty. My client in Mexico in Spanish calls it prosperidad incluyente, inclusive prosperity, not a non-exclusive prosperity, not socialism, not capitalism, together, integrated system. That is what we need to develop. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I love that line of thinking and that philosophy. There's uh, the name escapes me, but one of the most popular restaurants in the United States, it's a crab shack in Florida. And there's a very well-known story about not just how generous they are with, with paying all of their staff, but they're very generous with their suppliers and they pay more for their product than any of their competitors do. And yes, and yet they're wildly profitable and lined up around the corner, it's tough to get a reservation. So I think you know, there's, there's, there's enough evidence that's, that's compiling now about generosity being the way to really, you know, the you formula know, for success. I, I, want to, I want to reinforce what you're saying. The trick to success is integration. Show me an integrated family and I will show you success. Show me a person that has it all together, I will show you success. Show me a country that has it all together, more success. And Canada should have more success than we have here. We are falling apart in America. Now, what is ultimate integration? Ultimate, ultimate integration. Love. Love, my friend. Show me a person that's loving, and I will show you success. We need to bring love to our life. We need to bring love to our companies, to our families. We have to start loving more, you know? Look at this, very important subject. If you look at the development of humanity, Jeff, we started the chimpanzees, if you are Darwinian. The strongest, the strongest chimpanzee was a leader. Then we were a nomadic society. The strongest hunter was a leader. Then we become agricultural society. The guy with the most land and sheep and cows was a leader. Common denominator, muscles, possessions, possessions and power. Then was industrial society, and now the brain came to play again. We need to plan and we need to hire and we need to budget and we need to buy. Agricultural society, industrial society was power and brain. Now we live in a post-industrial society. What's most important? Brain. What does Uber have? Not one taxi. Brain. Computer. What does Airbnb have? Not one hotel. Computer. Data. Information. Brain is a game. What does Israel have? 63% of Israel desert. No oil, no gold, no diamonds, nada. What do they have? Seichel, it's called in Hebrew, a brain. Yeah. Power, power, power. Okay. That is on its way out, Jeff. Yeah, it's that's... on its way out. No, what that's... is on its way out? The brain. Why? Artificial intelligence, quantum computing. We are relying on Siri now. I don't even know how much is nine times seven. My students in a master's degree, tell them how much is 9.7. He says, I don't know. One moment. We are now getting driven by the computer. So what is the future? If we don't develop the heart, the future is Nazi Germany, my friend. Nazi Germany was not a fluke in the history of mankind. It was a preamble. Brain and power with no heart. The future of good management, the future of society, to bring love to our companies. And if you don't bring that, and what is love? Love is based on mutual trust and respect. Yes, absolutely. If we don't trust and respect each other, how the hell can we love each other? Thanks for sharing that. Uh, Dr. Adijas, if, so if my fact checking is, is correct here, so please feel free to correct me. We've already determined that you have 26 books, not 21. Uh, your, your, your upbringing is fascinating to me. And uh, so as an example, during the Second World War, as a Jewish family, you took refuge uh, uh, in Albania. 
you were in the Israeli military. Uh, you moved to the United States in 1963, the year JFK was assassinated. And I just, I had to ask, like, how did those unique historical experiences impact the person that you became and the life that you've led? <laughs> you know, Jeff, I speak four languages and none of them well. A, B, in any language I speak, I have an accent. So everybody asks me, where are you from? I belong to nowhere and <laughs> I'm all over the place. The advantage of that is that I have no real biases to the point of being limited. I was saved by Muslim family in Albania. They saved my life. Muslims saved my life. I grew in a Jewish family in Israel. I came to America and I lived with some Catholics. I don't have the limitation of what is right and what is wrong. And I start looking and learning from anything I can. So that, that, that freedom to, to, to look at things without bias and to learn from everything is what made me who I am today. When you look back on your, uh, on your body of work, what is something that you haven't done yet or that you wish you had or you'd like to? Oh, God. I don't know whether you know, but I'm 85 years old. I do. I'm not a young chick. I'm I not a young chick. And my fear is that I'm going to die before I live up to my potential. And I have so much to say and so much to write and just not enough time. And that's my biggest fear. So I'm writing now three books in parallel. I'm, I just finished writing the story of my life, my, mem my, my memoir. I'm looking for a publisher. We're waiting for a publisher to find out. You know, who I am, where I came from, and my experiences, how I developed, what I developed. I'm writing a book about what really matters in life. Love, relationships, communication. I'm just finishing that book. I'm rewriting my book on life cycles. As I told you, there is so much more material after 15 years of experience that the, the book is becoming 560 pages. I'm going to divide it into three or four books. So my goal now is to have so much to write about. And uh, what I, would you believe here is what I really want to write. I hope I get to it before it's too late. I hope you do. Uh, book I, I really want to write, the title is Predicting History. Because history did not happen happenstance. It follows the life cycle. There is a life cycle to society, life cycle to humanity. History happens for a reason. And that, and I can look at it using my tools that I developed. I can actually write why Hitler happened. Why America is falling apart. Why Trump was elected. I predicted he's going to be elected without, you know, long time ago. So there is a history, the history can be predicted. So that is a book I want to write, predicting history. Well, that sounds like a book uh, that I would like to read. So I hope you get a chance to, to write it. And that, in, the, in the same line of thinking, Dr. Adijas, of all of the things that you have done in your career, what's something that you're most proud of? I lost two pounds. <laughs> That's my most difficult challenge, believe me. I can do many, many things. Change societies, consult to prime ministers, losing two pounds. Oh my God, that's my problem. <laughs> that was not the answer I don't think anybody was expecting after every, all <laughs> no, of these deep thoughts that you have shared with struggle. us. That's my struggle, you know, how to control my mouth. <laughs> no, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a wonderful answer and a, and a good segue. So, you know, Jeff, we always want to control, change others. The most difficult one to change is yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that for sure. And if we could just focus on that instead of worrying about other, uh, what other people are doing and changing others, the world would be a better place to. Uh, Dr. Adijas, this has been such a pleasure to have a chance to spend some time with you today. And we just scratched the surface on a lot of complicated topics. But you know, I, th I think my hope is that anybody that, that listens to the conversation is going to be curious enough to go check out uh, your work. And where would you prefer people to go and find you? 
for my website, for all my books, all my videos, and all my webinars, and there are lots of material. Go to www.adizas.com. And as a reminder to everybody tuning in to stay connected with us, you can find us on all your favorite platforms on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, you can also find us on LinkedIn. And be sure to track us down on our YouTube account as well and, and give us a subscribe there. And you can listen to the podcast wherever your favorite podcasts are available. Thank you Thank for you. joining us uh, so much today, Dr. Jesus. We have a lot of things to discuss, uh, to discuss uh, after today too. And, and thank you to the audience for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. Now, if you found today's conversation helpful, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues who like learning as much as you do. And if you're a leader of a business and you're ready to take the next step because you know there's unleashed potential that exists within it, don't wait another minute. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.